you would take your copy of God's word and be turning with me to Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Amen. Large store in a big city was broken into in the middle of the night. It was, however, a strange burglary. Nothing was stolen. Instead, the pranksters broke in and went about the store in the darkness of the night, not stealing items, but switching price tags. The next morning when the store opened, chaos ensued. Priceless items are brought to the counter with small price tags. And cheap items are placed on the counter to be sold at great amounts because someone had changed the price tag. Unfortunately, this is an all-true parable of the day and culture that we live in, including the church in America. Someone has shifted the price tax. And in too many instances, we major in minor things and minor in major things. And as we look around, as we look within, the question confronts us, does truth matter anymore? And the Lord's last letter to the church at Pergamon tells us, absolutely, truth matters, and it must matter to the church. 
In fact, we see in this letter that the church that pleases the Lord is the church that thinks and acts according to the truth. This letter is a warning against spiritual compromise in the church. And as quickly as I can, I want to show you four reasons why the church must contend against spiritual compromise. Four reasons why the church must contend against spiritual compromise. Reason number one, the authority of Christ. The authority of Christ. Verse 12 reads, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. By now we are catching on that these letters, though unique and specific, have a similar structure. They begin addressing the angel of that particular church, be it a human being or a supernatural being. And then the Lord starts by identifying himself to that local church. Each identification is unique and particular and specific to that church. And here, the Lord introduces himself to the church at Pergamum as him who has the sharp two-edged sword. These are the ones, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. This draws us back to the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ in chapter 1, verse 16, where John writes that in his right hand he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Here, the resurrected, glorified, reigning Christ addresses this local church and begins by this statement. These are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. This letter begins with an affirmation of the judicial authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here, Jesus presents himself as the one who is the final judge. Judgment is in the Lord's hands. This sharp two-edged sword points us to the authority of his word. This is no strange picture. In scripture, God's word works like a sword. In fact, in the day of Pentecost, after Peter's Message, the response of those who heard the word of God and the message of the risen Savior, we are told in Acts 2.37, they were cut to the heart. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6 that we are to stand our ground against the schemes of the enemy with the whole armor of God that has been provided for us, specifically Chapter 6, verse 17, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And the writer of Hebrews, in chapter 4, verse 12, says that the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any double-bladed sword. 
here in graphic language. The judicial authority of the Lord Jesus Christ is presented as he who has the sharp, two-edged sword. Two-edged sword. To address both sin within and Satan without. It is a sharp, two-edged sword denoting the irresistible nature of the word and authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that these words are addressed not to the city, but to the church. He who is the judge speaks here to the church, warns them about spiritual compromise. And the tribe that uh, I grew up in as a believer, there has been, and even more so in these days, this constant emphasis on the importance of speaking truth to power. And emphasizing that that's what Jesus did in his ministry. He spoke truth to power. That is true, but as I hear so many of my colleagues that think the primary calling of their work is to speak truth to power after the example of Jesus, it seems that what they missed is that primarily when Jesus spoke truth to power, his concern was not political corruption but religious hypocrisy. He was concerned about those who claim to know God. Here, speaking with judicial and authoritative language, the Lord addresses not the city of Pergamon, but the church within that city. It is a reminder that judgment begins in the house of God. And so the first reason why the church must contend against spiritual compromise is the authority of Christ. He is the judge who has the last word. But then notice as well the reality of persecution. Verse 13, I know where you dwell. I know where you dwell. This is language the Lord speaks to these churches regularly. I know. I know. I know. I was called to pastor my first church as a teenager. And one of the blessings the Lord gave me in those early days was a sweet prayer warrior to be my secretary. She didn't view the, the church office as the church office. That was, a, that was a glorified prayer closet for her. She believed the Lord put her there to cover me in prayer. And as a young man with this big assignment, I just had members in those early weeks and months, maybe years, who were just self-appointed experts. And I just had series of meetings where they would just show up. I thought I'm ministering to them, and they'd come to tell me what I needed to do 
to lead the church. And there are times after those meetings, it's as if Sister Laverne could sense the heaviness. She would just come in and remind me, as she regularly would, that opinions, pastor, are like heads. Everybody's got one. <laughs> Make sure you talk to the Lord about it. Everyone has an opinion, but only the Lord can say, I know. I know. He knows. And he says here, I, I know specifically where you dwell. Where, wherever you find yourself is no accident. God is providentially orchestrator. As my daddy would say, he, he navigates the circumstances of life. He knows where you are. He says to the church at Ephesus, verse 2, chapter 2, I know your works. Chapter 2, verse 9, he says to the church at Smyrna, I know your tribulation. And now he says to the church at Pergamon, I know where you dwell. I know where you live. And I know the circumstances of where you live. He notes those difficult circumstances. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. With the symbolic language of the book of Revelation, of course, there's much speculation about the intended meaning of many of the statements and clauses and terminology used, and you'll find that here. Is this a reference to the political dynamics in the city of Pergamon, this being the center of a small kingdom? Is this a reference to cultural dynamics in the city of Pergamon? Is this a reference to the religious idolatry of the city? We can't land on any of these in a dogmatic way. But in a real sense, there may be the combination of all of these factors. The political power there, the cultural happenings there, the religious idolatry there, all, all work together to produce in the language here of Satan's throne a, a place where spiritual warfare constantly confronted the church. I want to say that again, beyond the political and cultural and religious implications, this is a reminder of a spiritual warfare with which this church was confronted. It's as if the presence and the power of Satan was dynamically at work here in the city of Pergamon, so much so that the Lord says, I know where you dwell. It is where Satan's throne is. He may have visited Ephesus. He may have Worked in Pergamos, but he lived here, or rather uh, Smyrna, but he lived here in Pergamon. His throne was there. What graphic language. But it is a reminder. Warfare, spiritual warfare, that all of us are engaged in as followers of Jesus Christ. 
Paul rightly advises, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Ephesians 6 verse 12. Let me paraphrase that for you. People are not your biggest problem. Oh, that it were as simple as that. That you could vote a problem in or vote a problem out. This is a spiritual reality. We're reminded of that as Jesus says to this church, I know where you dwell. It is where Satan's throne is. He knows their difficult circumstances. But note that in spite of their difficult circumstances, they, they maintain a steadfast devotion to Christ. I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is. And without lingering there to explain that statement, he says, yet in the midst of that reality, you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Oh, friends. Do not allow your circumstances to govern your devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, though he will get to a few things that he has against them, again, as he does with the church of Ephesus, begins with words of commendation. This church faces difficult circumstances. Around them, there are political and cultural and religious forces that oppose their faith in Christ. And in a real sense, this, this makes up a spiritual warfare. But they will not allow their devotion to Christ to be dictated by the circumstances that they face. I totally agree with what Kevin has said to us earlier. This... America may not become Smyrna, but we are increasingly living in a day, time, and culture where there is this growing hostility against Christ. And in our lifetime, we, we may see direct and harsh persecution as it requires us to stand as faithful witnesses to the Lord Jesus Christ. But may we be encouraged and challenged by these words that even though they were where Satan's throne is, yet they held fast to the name of Christ. They did not deny the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Could it be that they, as the words of Acts 5 verse 41, could it be that these were people who even counted themselves Praise God that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name. They did not allow the circumstances to dictate their devotion. They held fast to the name of Jesus Christ and did not deny, he says, my faith. They stuck, they held fast, they kept a grip on the name of Christ, 
and the message, the truth of Christ and his saving work. Even he says in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. We don't um, know much about Antipas outside of what this text tells us, but what we find here is, is, is important. To give an illustration of the difficulty of the place where they lived, he mentions Antipas. And he tells us two things about him. He was a faithful witness. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, and in chapter 3, verse 14, this language is used to describe Christ himself. Jesus is the faithful and true witness. But he who is the faithful and true witness here commends Antipas, who was a faithful witness. He witnessed not just with his lips, but with his life. His faithfulness to Christ cost him his life, and he was killed, Jesus says to this church, among you where Satan dwells. Starting the verse and ending the verse, emphasizing the presence and power of Satan at work in this city and the real spiritual warfare that this church had to face and stand firm in the midst of. The reason why, secondly, then we must uh, constantly contend against spiritual compromise is because of this reality that indeed, as 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 says, all who would live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Thirdly, we must contend against spiritual compromise because of the perversion of sin. The perversion of sin. Whatever was going on in the, in the culture of the city around them, the church at Pergamon apparently stood firm, but there was an infiltration that took place. Verse 14 says, but I have a few things against you. I have a few things against you. We saw last night, after much commendation to the church at Ephesus, Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, the Lord says to the church at Ephesus, but I have this against you. There's a lot of commendable things going on in the church at Ephesus, but I have something against you. But now he says to the church at Pergamon, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also, verse 15, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. 
I think these are two issues representing the few things that he has against them. And I think this reference to the teaching of Balaam is an illustration of the problem that they face within this church, namely the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Remember Balaam? As Moab was in constant conflict against the people of God, Balak, the king of Moab, has a scheme to overcome the people of God. He will hire himself a prophet who will speak curses on the people of God. But God restrained Balaam. And every time he sought to curse God's people, he instead blessed God's people. But apparently, the prophet who was paid to curse couldn't curse, but he still sought a way to help. What we find here is that in a real sense, when Balaam could not curse the people of God, he showed Balak how to corrupt the people of God. It's as if when persecution wouldn't work, perversion would. And as a result, text says, Balak put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. The story of Balaam and Balak is recorded in Numbers chapters 22 through 25, but later in the end of that Passage chapter 31, verses 15 through 16, shows us how Balaam and Balak conspired to undermine the people of God from within when they could not overthrow the people from without. And though the connection between that Old Testament story and this New Testament reality may not be perfectly clear, the big point is obvious that there are times when if, if the devil can't kill a church, he'll join it. And this seems to be what's taking place here. Verse 13, they stood fast in the face of persecution, but, but inward corruption and perversion. led them away from faithfulness to God. Idolatry and immorality corrupted the church from within. Chapter 2, verse 6, again, speaking to the church at Ephesus, the Lord Jesus says, Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, 
in verse 15, speaking to the church at Pergamon. We shift from their deeds to the teaching of the Nicolaitans and the connection to the teaching of Balaam. Seems to indicate that whoever these Nicolaitans were, that their teaching led to error and idolatry and immorality that was leading some away from faithfulness to the Lord. The warning here is for the church to stand guard against spiritual permissiveness. The enemy cannot curse, he will corrupt. If persecution does not work, perversion will. If he cannot kill the church, he will try to join the church. Notice the call to repent. Verse 16 The Lord tells the church how to respond to this reality. Repent, therefore, repent. Again, repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of attitude that becomes evident in a change of behavior. It is a U-turn. The, the word repent is often a missing word in the lexicon of the contemporary church. Well, I guess it's hard to talk about repentance if churches are afraid to talk about sin. But I submit to you, this is a word to be embraced. This call to repent is a call to come back to God. And the beauty of this is that by commanding us to come back to God, the, the commandment of God is the enablement of God. The Lord has every right and reason to judge, but he extends another chance by his amazing grace and his sparing mercy and his loyal love. You have allowed some in the church to, to compromise the purity of the church, the integrity of the church, the truthfulness of the church. But repent. Repent or else. I'm commanding you to repent. You may choose not to. You may choose to keep going the route that you are going. But beware, there are consequences to your choice. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has the sharp two-edged sword 
now threatens to come to the church at Pergamon and wage war against those who compromise and corrupt his church. This is how seriously the Lord takes the integrity of his church and the holiness of his church and the purity of his church. And he warns that if you won't do it, I will. I will come to you soon, if not in war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We haven't leaned on this too much in these opening letters, but this is the Lord's call to every church. Hear. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. And hear represents more than hearing, right? To, to hear his voice is to heed his command. Hear, if anyone will hear my voice, if you have ears to hear, hear. We, we parents know how this dynamic works. Mom or dad tells the child to do this or that, only to discover that the child has not done what the parent has said. And so the parent asked, did you hear what I said? <laughs> the, the question has nothing to do with whether or not the child actually heard it. Right? The question assumes that if you heard what I said, you would do what I instruct. And the rhetorical question suggests that the only reason you didn't do what I told you to do, you must didn't hear what I said. <laughs> and in my house, that comes with consequences. <laughs> Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. And to the one that conquers to the victorious, to the one that prevails. He makes some promises. These are somewhat ambiguous promises, but they are promises of blessing and assurance, yea, even intimacy. In the place where Satan dwells and his throne is, Jesus says, if you will be faithful to me, I give you the assurance that I am with you. I am with you. I will give you some of the hidden manna. Commentators sort through what that means, and I, I'll accept just a simple explanation of this 
which is a glorious truth, that through this manna that God provided, the heavenly food God provided for the children of Israel in the wilderness, he sustained his people even though the nations around them did not know how. This is our God. If you will hear my voice and do my will and remain faithful to me, I will sustain you. Even in the place where Satan dwells and where his throne is, to the one who prevails, to the one who is victorious, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give you I will give them a white stone. Again, we're not clear about what that picture is intended to say. White stone would be the means, among other things, of the way a verdict was rendered, declaring someone innocent. It was also a means of invitation. Again, I think this is a picture of, of blessing and assurance and intimacy, made all the more evident, I believe, by his next statement. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it later. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 12, Jesus is described this way. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. A picture of the supremacy and the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ. For here he promises to the one that conquers in Pergamon, I will give him a new name. Written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. The passage begins with a warning about the reality of this church that lived where Satan's throne is. It ends with these promises of God's favor and assurance and intimacy in Christ. A new name. No one knows except the one written on it. I freaked out the brothers in our church early in my pastorate in Los Angeles, uh, in Jacksonville, that is. We were discussing something, planning something. And I said, no, that sounds like a great idea. I'm in. Let me check with Christopher. And they said, well, that's fine. And then one of the elders, Wes, said, wait, what? Who is Christopher? And why would you need to check in with whoever he is about this? Well, since you asked. I'll tell you, Christopher is my wife, I told him. And yes, there's a story behind this. I, I, I just 
show affection to my wife with nicknames and terms of endearment. And we served and lived in Los Angeles with family and friends and people we had known all our lives, and they just constantly intruded on my intimacy. <laughs> my, my wife's name is Crystal. And abbreviating it, I just, I called her Chris. Until I showed up for family events and heard family members calling my wife Chris. And we get to church, and friends at church are calling my crystal, Chris. I told her I didn't like it, and it was too late to stop it, but I knew how to respond. <laughs> I said, since they've taken the shortened name, I'm, a, I'm an extended. And I said, I wonder what, I, I'm going to call you Christopher, and I dare them to call you that. <laughs> and now around family and friends, as they regularly hear me call my wife Christopher, they, they know that's my affectionate way of saying she is mine. She's my crystal. She's my beloved. Jesus says here, I know where you are. I know where you are. And I know the difficulty of your circumstances. And I know that you dwell where Satan's throne is. But remain faithful to me. I will bless you. I will smile on you. I will give you the assurance that you are mine and that I care for you and that my blessings are on you no matter where you find yourself, no matter where you have been assigned, no matter what the difficulty is. Glory to God. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenge to submit to your authority in every sphere of our lives and our work. Thank you for the warning that we through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. And that all who would live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And that the servant is no greater than his master. If they have persecuted you, they will persecute us. But would you help us, Lord, to be faithful to you? To name the name of Jesus Christ without fear, without shame. And to hold fast to the faith, no matter what trials or warfare opposition we face. May we be diligent to be faithful in the integrity of the truth and in our obedience to your commands 
and to stand firm against the perversion and the corruption of the world around us so that we might be the salt of the earth and the light of the world that you have called us to be, that we might truly be a sign and a herald and a foretaste of your present but not yet kingdom. May we do so, Lord, with assurance that you are with us. Casting our cares on you because you care for us. Trusting that you reign over us. We praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.